well, good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the uh, latest presentation from Brooklyn's TV. Um, quick housekeeping point before we get going. Uh, if you have any questions, two ways of asking questions at the end of the presentation, either please put those into the chat box and we'll pick them up, or at the end, we will also have a, a question and answer session, so you can raise hands, we will um, unmute you, and you can then ask your question live. So our guest this evening is uh, Dr. Ian Murray. Uh, he lectures in computing at Dundee University, but he's also an expert on the life and the works of Sir Barnes Wallace. He's actually written three books on that subject, uh, a biography of Sir Barnes Wallace. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the excellent uh, Haynes workshop manuals on various subjects. And Ian wrote both uh, the Dambusters edition and uh, the Wellington Bomber edition. Now that work led to the discovery and the recovery of uh, two prototype highball bouncing bombs from uh, Loch Striven near Glasgow in uh, 2017, uh, one of which was restored and came to Brooklyn's museum in 2019 where it, where it remains. So with that introduction, I will now um, hand you over to uh, Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. Hello, thank you for that introduction, Harry. I hope that I can share my screen with you and you can see some slides. Um, I'm hoping that that's visible. Yes, that's working and we can see that clearly. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you. Um, so uh, my talk is entitled Highball the Other Bouncing Bomb because it's less famous than the Dam's Bomb and I've subtitled it A Cinderella Story with Robots for reasons that you'll see. Um, so, as Harry said, it's, uh, it's the story of how uh, the highball came to be at Brooklands. Um, I'm planning to talk for around 35, 40 minutes, um, after which there should be time for questions. And if you don't answer the questions, then I'll give the talk again. Um, Brooklands is, of course, the, uh, the spiritual home of Barnes Wallace. Um, this is a, an outline of the presentation. I'll start out with an introduction to what uh, motivated the whole uh, highball recovery, but the highball development, first of all, um, some geography just to, to place where Loch Striven is. Um, and briefly, I'll talk about how highball was developed and how it was used, and then uh, how we actually uh, got the, the diving operation and the recovery. Um, so bouncing bombs are not terribly uncommon, actually. Um, there are prototypes in several places, including Brooklyn's. Um, there are bits of upkeep, uh, mostly recovered from uh, Reculver in Kent, uh, also in various places. Um, there are quite a lot of complete upkeeps around, uh, including Brooklyn's. Um, the, there are some highball cylinders, so this is part of a highball um, at various places as well. Some of these are incorrectly labelled as being upkeeps, but they are too small, so they're actually uh, highballs. Um, there is an upkeep at Scampton. I'm not sure if it's an original one or a replica. If anybody can tell me, that would be uh, that would be useful. Um, there is also the casing of a highball at Haverford West Airport, which was recovered after a test dropping highballs into tunnels, uh, which was done in Wales, which is why it, uh, it ended up there. 
but complete highballs you do not find. There was not one in a museum anywhere. Um, meanwhile, at Brooklands itself, um, you have a prototype bouncing bomb, uh, you have a complete upkeep, uh, you have a unique £4,000 earthquake bomb prototype, so that's the, uh, the only one of those that still exists, uh, one of several tall boys which are around, and one of several grand slams which are around as well. Uh, but the one that was missing from your set was a complete highball, so that was one of the, the reasons to start the, the whole thing off. Um, I imagine that most of you watching will have seen the Dam Busters, and this is a clip from the film. And this is actually not the Dam's bomb at all. This is a highball being tested on uh, Loch Striven. Uh, the reason for that was that upkeep was only tested in the sea. Um, so if they had used that footage, it would have had the wrong backdrop for continuity with dropping the, the bomb on a lake in Germany. So they used the the highball footage from Loch Striven just for uh, for film continuity, and that's also the reason why the uh, the bomb in the film is spherical, whereas the real bomb was uh, was actually cylindrical. Um, and so that's the the background to why Loch Striven appears in this story. Uh, so Wallace uh, actually patented his bouncing bomb idea in 1942. This was one of 140 patents which he produced during his working life. Um, this diagram of the bomb striking a dam is very well known, uh, but the same patent where that originally appeared also had this diagram in it, uh, which showed exactly the same principle, but hitting a ship rather than a dam. Um, and uh, its use against canals was also mentioned in the patent. So it wasn't an add-on, the, the idea of using it against ships uh, was in there from the start. And did, again, you'll be familiar from the, the Dam Busters movie of the, the testing tank shots. Um, when the Navy top brass came to the testing tank to see what was going on, Wallace took the dam model out and put a model battleship in instead so that they, they got the idea from that. Uh, so this is, look quickly in the distance, you'll see Margate Pier there. This is one of the test drops which was done at uh, Reculver on the North Kent coast. This is a very typical uh, shot. There were many test drops done there as well. The water was very shallow so that when the tide went out, they could recover the, the bombs off the, the sand. Um, but after the, uh, the dams raid in May 1943, uh, they moved all of the highball testing away from Reculver and up to uh, Loch Striven in Scotland because the geography of the lock was much more similar to where they were planning to actually uh, use the highball. So here is central Scotland. Um, you can see Glasgow in the centre of the frame there, and over to the left is Loch Striven, which I've coloured in in red. Um, it's only 35 miles from Glasgow, but it's very remote. Um, it's a steep-sided lock. There are very few houses around the sides of the lock. Um, so it's quite uh, difficult to get to in other than in, in a boat really. Um, so it's relatively remote and useful for secret testing. Um, also of interest, if you look towards the bottom is RAF Turnbury, that's where the mosquitoes that were dropping the test bombs 
were based. So they basically flew up the Firth of Clyde, dodged around the, the island of Butte, and then up uh, into Loch Striven. Uh, the site of RAF Turnbury is now a golf course, or it's partly covered by a golf course, uh, which is owned by a former American president. Uh, it's the orange one, in case you're wondering. Uh, if we zoom in on the Loch Striven area, uh, the whole of the Clyde uh, corner layer just around Gurak was a an anchorage during World War II for uh, both merchant ships and naval ships, and it was protected by a, um, a net, a barrier across between the Noon and Clock Point there uh, to protect it from enemy submarines. Um, the bottom left there is HMS Varbell on the island of Butte. That was the base for the X-Craft midget submarines. Uh, they were actually using Loch Striven as well for exactly the same reasons that they were going after the same target. Uh, so they sailed out of uh, Port Bannatyne there and up into the loch. Uh, there was also a house up at the top of uh, Loch Striven, which was requisitioned, and that was used by the midget submarine people as well, inspiringly called HMS Varbell II. Uh, so that was top and tailed by the... Uh, the midget submarine bases, if you like. Um, also coming into the picture over on the right-hand side there is the Marine Aircraft Experimental Establishment at Helensburgh. Uh, that was moved up there at the start of the war, and they did flight testing on uh, seaplanes, flying boats, uh, including the, the Sunderlands that were being built at uh, Denny's at Dumbarton, which is just out to the, the right-hand side of the, the map there. Um, and MAE supplied the photographers who took the photographs and the, the footage of the, the test drops. Um, the one thing about Loch Striven which wasn't quite so secret was the fact that on the island of Butte, uh, down at the bottom of the map there, there is the uh, seaside resort of Rothsey, and it looks north straight into the mouth of Loch Striven. So anybody with uh, decent binoculars could have had a look straight up there. Um, so when the tests were taking place, they laid a smoke screen across the, the mouth of the uh, the lock, so anybody would have been stopped from actually looking up there. Um, if you look to the top of the map, uh, there is uh, the naval base at Fast Lane, where our nuclear deterrent is currently based. Um, that's also currently home to the uh, the Northern Diving Group, who are explosive ordnance divers, and they will come into our story later on as well. If we zoom in on the central part of Loch Striven there, uh, this is a map from 1943 showing the position of the target ship in the middle of the loch. And you can see down in the bottom half there are a series of buoys, and these were positioned at known distances away from the target ship so that the aircraft flying up the center of the lock knew how far away it was from the, the target and could release the bombs at the appropriate place. Um, if we zoom in on that, um, where the battleship was originally in the, the center of the lock uh, was about 180 feet deep. And although they hung nets underneath the ship in order to catch any bombs that uh, 
struck and fell down. Um, unfortunately, the, the bombs very inconveniently didn't land in the nets very often, um, and the lock there was too deep for them to actually uh, go down and uh, pick the, the bombs up using divers, using the, the, the standard uh, driving, uh, diving, diving dress of the day. A tongue twister I didn't notice. Um, this, the battleship which they used was a, a French World War I battleship Hulk, um, and it was used between 1943 into the, the summer of 1944, and then it was taken to uh, be sunk off the coast of Normandy. It forms part of the breakwater around the, the Mulberry Harbour at Aramanche. Uh, while it was sitting on the bottom uh, in uh, just after D-Day, it was attacked by a German midget submarine, uh, which mistook it for uh, an active ship. Uh, and I think that gives it the unique distinction of having been attacked by secret weapons of both sides during the war, which is uh, rather odd. Um, so because they couldn't recover the, the highballs easily from this location here, um, by late uh, summer of 43, they had moved the battleship and its accompanying photo ship over closer to the shore and further up the loch as well. Um, and that was where most of the test drops uh, actually took place with it in that location there. Um, consequently, that was the favourite location to go and actually look for the highballs when we were uh, we were searching for them uh, later on. Uh, this is a simulation, a sort of pi pilot's eye view of uh, a mosquito actually doing a, an attack run. That's the correct Wallace-designed highball site on the right-hand side there. That's Butte and Arden over in the distance. So the plane's doing about 220 miles an hour here at 60 feet, flying up the loch entirely by uh, sight, the pilot's own sight for the correct height. Uh, you saw the boys there and then overflying the, the target ship. And it the mosquito would pull up over the hill, uh, dive down into the loch on the other side of that hill there, and then uh, fly back to RAF Turnbury ready for the, uh, the next mission. So this is the genuine, or some one of the genuine test drop footage of the actual drops. And you can see the, the wooded hillside, but very few houses around. Uh, but the bomb really does go a very, very long way and very quickly as well. So it passes the boom defence vessel that was just used for photography, and then the target ship there with the booms sticking out from it that were holding the uh, the nets to try and catch the, the highball when it sank. Uh, so how did highball actually work? Um, the reason for using highball rather than a torpedo um, if you were attacking a moving ship was that it traveled a lot faster than a torpedo so if you could get close enough to drop it uh, it would get to the target much more quickly so the ship was much less likely to be able to evade um, if the ship was anchored um, then it would probably have had anti-torpedo nets around it so the uh, the highball obviously would jump over those uh, so it wouldn't be affected. So here is the highball bouncing over the water, uh, strikes the side of the ship, and then the 
the bomb was spun uh, at about 500 RPM. Uh, so after it struck the, the side of the ship, it would begin to sink, but the spin would actually press the bomb against the hull of the ship as it sank. And then it would, a depth charge pistol would fire it when it was underneath the ship. And of course, the underneath of the ship wasn't armored, uh, but the side of the ship where a torpedo would have struck was armored. So it was much more likely to do uh, damage to the uh, the ship by exploding underneath it rather than on the, the armor belt on the side. Uh, the bomb itself is actually surprisingly simple. Um, it's just a steel drum um, with about 600 pounds of Torpex explosive in it. Um, there's a pistol in each end. There's a self-destruct pistol and a depth charge pistol to actually uh, fire it off. Um, the size of it is just under three feet in diameter. Um, and between the cylinder and the outer spherical shell, there were uh, some sort of shock absorbing materials. They used uh, various uh, materials were tried for that. They used wood, they used compressed paper, they used um, like an, an aerated plastic, but looks a bit like an aero chocolate bar, uh, but made out of plastic. And that was just to absorb some of the shock if the, if the bomb hit the side of the ship. Uh, too fast. Um, all of the bombs that were dropped in Loch Striven were dummies. They used, uh, rather than the explosive, they used a mixture of cork and concrete just to get the, uh, the density correct. Um, this was the same structure as the original uh, dams bomb, the upkeep bomb, but because the upkeep was so much bigger, when it hit the water, the force actually ripped the spherical covering off. Um, and that was why the, the upkeep bomb ended up being a cylinder. They just couldn't get the, the spherical shell to stay on. But because highball was smaller, um, it was easier to uh, maintain the, the spherical shell and they kept the, the spherical size of it. Uh, and it weighs about uh, 1,200 pounds. Um, that was light enough that you could actually carry two of them and a mosquito. There was a, a special. Uh, carrying rig inside the bomb bay and a, a fairing around the outside of it. And it could drop these either singly or one after the other. They were timed so that they uh, they dropped about a quarter of a second apart. Um, so 618 Squadron uh, was formed at the same time as 617 Squadron. And it was the operational squadron that was uh, to go and actually deliver the uh, the highball bomb and its main target was to be the Tirpitz, which was uh, hiding in the fjords of Norway so that it could uh, come out and attack uh, the convoys that were sailing from uh, Iceland up to uh, the ports in the, the north of Norway. Um, the squadron trained all the way through 1943 and it was declared operational both as a squadron and the the weapon highball was operational as well. Um, but the Germans very inconsiderately had turpits positioned in the fjord in such a way that a, a broadside uh, attack by aircraft would have been very, very difficult. So the, uh, the ministry decided that the X-Craft midget submarines would get the first crack at the turpits and they successfully uh, attacked it in uh, September of 1943 and did it some quite serious damage. 
618 Squadron, unfortunately, were uh, stood down, um, although a detachment went to Cornwall and their mosquitoes were fitted with a, a six inch, uh, a six inch, a six pounder cannon uh, that they used against U-boats. Uh, they sank at least a couple of U-boats using that. Um, then in 1944, um, the squadron was reformed effectively and revived with the view of going to the Pacific to use highball against Japanese ships in the Pacific. So the air crew were trained how to do uh, carrier landings. Uh, Eric Winkle Brown, the famous test pilot, gave them training in uh, landing and taking off from aircraft carriers. And then in October 1944, uh, 25 or so of the mosquitoes were packaged up and put onto two escort carriers and they sailed for Australia and they got there just on uh, the last day of 1944. Um, the uh, squadron was never, uh, they, they continued to train, but they were never actually uh, used in combat for reasons which are still debated. Um, this may have been because the Americans didn't want us so heavily involved in their part of the war, uh, or that most of the uh, serious J uh, Japanese capital ships had already been sunk, or there was no point in revealing the, the secret weapon. Um, we may never know the actual reason that it was never used, but even before the war ended, July 1945, the squadron was broken up and all of the high balls were uh, blown up in a controlled explosion. Uh, so that was the, uh, the history of highball, and this is where my interest uh, came in. So around about 2007-2008, uh, uh, I was researching my book about Barnes-Wallace, and one of the things which I wanted to put in that was a list of all of the test drops of all of his weapons, which I could find because they were spread across numerous uh, different documents. So I wanted to bring these all together. Um, when I did that, I discovered that I had uh, solid uh, written evidence for at least 120 highball drops in Loch Striven. And I had circumstantial written evidence for about 80 more. And that probably didn't include the squadron practice drops. That was just the, the weapon testing drops. Um, so the squadron were supposed to get two drops for each crew, so that would have been another uh, 50. Um, again, I have a document which says that there were no live weapons dropped, um, and I also knew that many of them had not been recovered because they had missed the nets and they couldn't actually get them. So my logic at that point was that there were probably still quite a lot down there in the loch, and I knew from there not being one in a museum anywhere that we had a good incentive to go and try and uh, recover one. Um, however, I am not a diver. I'm not really a strong swimmer either. Um, so I had to get myself some divers to actually uh, carry out this uh, new mission, which I had. Um, so my first stop was actually the uh, one of the schools at the University of Dundee because they were well known as um, computer artists and what they were doing uh, and are still doing, they're making serious money, um, is taking data from side scar, 
side scan sonar uh, of objects on the seabed and then turning that into a three-dimensional visualization. So this is actually uh, their uh, scan of one of the wrecks in Scapa Flow. Um, they've, they've done the, the Royal Oak as well and various other uh, ships and now they're, they're doing it commercially. Uh, they did a scan of the, the ferry that sank off Korea was, was one that they did as well. Um, so that group put me in touch with both a PhD student that they had who was uh, a trainee diver and was also into making underwater films, uh, but also a marine archaeology company. Um, and that was uh, a good contact to actually try and uh, do the, the diving operation. We just needed to get some money. Uh, so this is where the story starts to get almost a little silly because um, it's a rather unconventional way of paying for an operation. Uh, this is a view from Rothsey looking north into Loch Striven and in the distance there you can see a little white patch uh, in the, the distance. So this is a number of ships and due to the, the economic downturn in 2008 uh, the shipping line Maersk had made a deal with Clydeport, who owned or at least managed Loch Striven, um, and they laid up six of their container ships in a raft in the uh, the middle of the loch. Um, so this is a, a view looking the other way, so you can see Rothsey over in the distance now. Um, the locals were not very happy about this because the ships made quite a lot, even though they were inactive, they made quite a lot of noise. Um, and Maersk were very uh, concerned about the, the negative publicity that they were getting. Um, and as a result, they ended up inviting nearly everybody that lived within a 10 mile radius out to the ships to have lunch uh, on at least one occasion. Um, and this is where the story really, really gets weird, um, surprisingly courtesy of Children's BBC um, and Mission 2110. Welcome to Futuregate, the enemy's stronghold and the last battleground for the future of humankind. Humanity's cybernetic servants that have all but wiped us out. Let's hope this works. Here we go! So this TV show was a, a bit like a, a children's version of the Crystal Maze. Uh, so it was set 100 years in the future, uh, where only one human is left alive fighting against the roboids who have destroyed mankind and who inhabit a base which looks rather like a set of container ships sitting in a Scottish loch. Um, so the chap that you saw there uses a time machine to beam children from our age uh, to the future to help him fight against the robots which are inhabiting the ships. Um, Maersk, the shipping line, were paid £30,000 by the BBC uh, for using the, the ships as a set for the show. Um, and Maersk were keen not to be seen to profit from uh, that contact. So what they did was to run a charity competition uh, in which local groups could compete for a share of that £30,000. And they used an online poll uh, to divvy up uh, who, who got the money. Uh, so from that, in April 2010, uh, we secured £1,200 for the, the diving expedition 
um, and that was uh, presented at a very nice lunch on board. This is uh, the captain of one of the ships and the, some of the Rothsey Pipe Band who got more than me. Um, but that's me getting the, the check from the captain out on the, the wing of the bridge and I sailed off into the sunset with the, the money. Um, so that was April 2010. In May, uh, we set up a preliminary dive, just essentially the, a, a couple of divers were going to walk in off the shore and see what the conditions were like in the loch. But the publicity from the, the competition led to the owner of this fishing boat contacting me just the day before we were going to go diving. Um, and he said that he fished in the loch and there were definitely some highballs in there. I said, how do you know? He says, because we fish them out occasionally, accidentally. I said, great, what do you do with them? He said, oh, we take them over to the deep bit of the loch and drop them in there because we don't fish in that bit. I thought, great, so they are there, but some of them have actually been moved. That's not very helpful. Um, he did, however, offer us the use of his boat as a, a diving vessel. Uh, and this is a couple of the, the divers. This is the, the PhD student from Dundee and the, uh, the commercial uh, underwater archaeologist diver uh, doing a, a quick dive in the loch. Um, we realized later if they, if they had swum just in the other direction, they would have probably found one, but on this occasion, they didn't. Um, so armed with all of that information, uh, we came back in July of 2010. Uh, we rented out the, uh, the fishing boat for a couple of days and he took us up the loch. And this is one of a view of his sonar. And you can see these very nice semicircular uh, lumps on the bottom of the loch. So we sent the divers down uh, onto one of these and it was a rock about the size of a highball. So they came back up again and then we found another one. Uh, he had some of these marked on his charts, which was very helpful. Um, and they dove down onto that and it was a rock about the size of a highball as well. So they came up and then we found another one and we dived down onto that. And it was a side charge from an X-Craft midget submarine because they were training in the loch using the same ship as a target. Um, but that wasn't a highball. So we, this happened uh, through that day. All of the targets were not highballs. So the following day, they managed to get the use of a remotely operated submarine um, to save having to actually get suited up every time and dive down. So we used that and on, I think the second target that we uh, went to with the submarine, we found a large anchor, a very large anchor with a very large chain attached to it. And we followed the chain along with the uh, midget submarine there. And partly to my surprise, I didn't see any connection between the chain and highball, but there was one sitting right beside the, the anchor chain. And within a very few minutes, we had spotted about uh, at least half a dozen up and down they went and we found uh, a whole bundle. So there's one there, there's the anchor chain, which you can see is very substantial. It's the sort of thing you'd anchor a battleship with. Uh, there's another highball there and further up another one. 
and further up. Another one. Come on, swim faster. You can still see some of the, the white paint on that one. And the, the hole in the end, there's a little lobster peeking out there. Um, so we now knew where the highballs were, and uh, it was just a case of arranging to, to get them brought out. Um, unfortunately, at that point, uh, this happened. Uh, not terribly much at all. In fact, um, we put in a bid to the lottery, which was unsuccessful. Uh, my diving contacts company went out of business. Um, I tried to uh, sell the idea to the Northern Diving Group at Fast Lane, uh, but I got no interest from them. Um, I started some of the paperwork because there's quite a lot of paperwork involved in recovering something from the seabed uh, that's owned by the Crown. So you have to uh, meet some, some of their requirements and you've got to um, uh, talk to the Ministry of Defence and things like that as well. I discovered that there's, a, there's an RAF procedure for recovering wreckage from an aircraft which has crashed, but they don't have a procedure for recovering something that was deliberately dropped by an aeroplane, uh, which was uh, rather strange, but that sort of uh, slowed things down. Um, then another coincidence comes into play because one of the data science students uh, at Dundee that I was uh, supervising, he knew the new incoming head of the Northern Diving Group, um, and he put me in touch with him personally in 2015. Uh, so they said that they hoped to go and have a look in sometime in 2016, uh, but I never heard from them, although I, was, I did pester them a little bit, but I never actually heard back from them. Um, I was ready to take some inspiration from a talk that I heard by uh, the chap who discovered Captain Scott's Terra Nova wreckage off the, the coast of Greenland, uh, but uh, didn't really have to go there in the end because in 2016, I was contacted by the East Cheshire Subaqua Club and they were looking for some interesting diving experience and they had heard about my uh, desire to get a high ball out of Loch Striven and that started things moving again. Uh, so this is the team uh, that they, they put together. Um, all 12 of these good folk were involved in the diving. Um, over on the right there is um, Mark Paisley. He was the, the leader of the team. Uh, I'm sure that most of you listening are familiar with uh, John Nicol, the guy who uh, wrote this and a number of other aviation books. He was a tornado pilot in the first Gulf War, got shot down. Uh, Mark Paisley was flying the tornado immediately behind him. Um, and when he left the RAF, he got interested in diving and he's now a, a, a professional uh, diving instructor. Um, two of these, including the, the Dundee student, are were also on the, the, the 2010 dive. Um, I should say they all, they all paid their own way for this mission. Um, we didn't have to raise any money for it. They, they were all uh, willing to pay their own way uh, just for the, the actual diving experience, provided their own boats and fuel and uh, accommodation, etc. So uh, they were uh, useful people to have. 
Um, so the, the plan was that they would uh, find uh, or refine the highballs, uh, pick a couple of good ones and lift them up using airbags from the bottom of the lock and tow them using the boats over to a slipway and then wait for the tide to go out and pick the, the highball off the, the end of the slipway. Um, so that was planned for July of 2017. And then about three months before that, something rather unexpected happened. I discovered that dive teams are like buses. Uh, they tend to come along in pairs because I got contacted by the chap from the Northern Diving Group and he said, I had divers on the high balls this afternoon. When would you like one? Uh, so initially I was in a panic because I thought that the Navy would preempt these good people and all of the mission that they had set up. Uh, but the obvious thing to do was to put the two teams in contact with one another, which turned out to be uh, a match made in heaven. And the amateur divers got the diving experience they wanted. The Royal Navy divers got the EOD experience that they were looking for. And the Royal Navy team very nicely came with a large diving support vessel, which had a 10-ton crane on it, which made the actual recovery of the highball a lot easier and safer, which was absolutely fantastic. So this is video from the bridge of that ship, just as the first highball uh, breaks the surface there. Um, one of their diving support vessels off to the right. They put a frame around it to hold the, the strapping on because they kept coming loose. We had these tanks ready to put them in. Uh, I was very concerned when a bit of the outside shell came off but it turned out that that was just accretion that was stuck to the outside of the bomb. So once we got the bomb into the tank, um, we got the hammer and chisels out. And after I had definitely reassured them that there were definitely no live weapons here, um, we started hacking away at the accretion stuck on the, the outside. Uh, so this is me talking to the, the leader of the, the Northern Diving Group, explaining the uh, the workings of highball. He looks fascinated there. Um, this is the other highball, which the, the team took down to the Mosquito Museum in Hertfordshire. So it's currently sitting in a tank of water under their uh, prototype mosquito there. Um, and this is the second highball, which we recovered when it's been partially removed of all of the, the gunge. The gunge is absolutely horrible. It sticks. I don't know what it is, but it's sticks to everything. Um, so the, the bomb that was destined for Brooklands, uh, first of all, went to the Mary Rose Trust down in Portsmouth. So this is it sitting in a tank of uh, desalination fluid uh, water with some extra chemicals in it. The tank on the left hand side's actually got a bit of the Mary Rose in it. Um, so it sat in that tank for a while uh, until all of the uh, the salt was removed from it and then they took it out and dried it off and varnished it uh, so that it was uh, conserved. Uh, this is me talking to it uh, for a television program in 2019. Uh, they asked me to put rubber gloves on before I touched it. I didn't like to say to them that I'd previously been hitting it with a hammer and chisel, uh, but uh, we got there. And then the final part of the jigsaw, um, the bomb was recovered from uh, the Mary Rose Trust and delivered to 
Brooklands, uh, and this is uh, Andy Lambert's footage of the delivery that it's passing the uh, Grand Slam and pop down right beside its big brother. So final piece of the jigsaw, Brooklands now has a complete highball to complete its collection of Barnes Wallace bombs. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you'll find more information on these websites uh, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you uh, very much uh, indeed, and that was um, absolutely fascinating. Um, so if you want to maybe uh, stop screen sharing and then we can we can look at you then when we uh, when we do the questions. So there are a few that and I, I, I thought about this as well, actually. I had heard the legend that the in the Dan Busters movie when it was made, it was still top secret as to what upkeep actually was, and that although it was cylindrical as you say, um, in the movie it was shown as as the uh, as, as as the sphere because that that, that that was still secret. But but you said that's not actually the real reason. It was this because they, they, they couldn't get the sphere to work around the cylinder on the larger upkeep bomb. Well, it it, it certainly was still secret. It, the it wasn't declassified until 61, 62, I think. Um, and even in the the dam, the dam buster shots where you see the test drops, um, although you can see it's a bouncing bomb, they've actually matted it out. So it's, you don't see any detail of the bomb itself. It's just a, a black disc and it sort of wobbles a bit because the matte painter uh, was a, a bit shaky. Um, the there will partly be the reason that it was it was still secret, but also partly um, for the the continuity that they had they had to use the lock driven footage for the actual dam attack, uh, and consequently the bomb that you see in the dam attack had to be the same one that you saw being developed earlier on in the film, so it had to be spherical as well. Yeah, yeah, you explained that in the talk there. Uh, so, some, someone mentioned in the chat, they said that there's a replica highball in the de Havilland Museum, but in actual fact, you covered that in your talk. It's not a replica at all. It's, just, it's one of yours, in fact. They, they, I don't know if they had a replica original. I've, 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 in all honesty, I've never been to the de Havilland Museum. Um, no, not, not, neither have I, but it's, uh, it's on my list now. But certainly the one, the one which they have in the tank of water is a genuine one that you've seen a photograph of there. Yeah, so there's another question here, which is, um, I heard the highball was quite successful, dropped into tunnels in Wales. Any information about that? Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, there's there's in uh, a place called Main Clochog in Wales, there's a very short railway tunnel about 100 yards long. And they were interested in using um, highball to bounce into the mouth of railway tunnels uh, to bring down the, the wall of the tunnel. So they did some static experiments where they put explosive on the wall of the tunnel uh, to see if an explosion would actually bring the roof of a railway tunnel down, um, which under the right conditions it did. Um, so they did a number of test drops of the mosquito flying from RAF Valley to Mine Clochog and flying along the railway and dropping the bomb into the, the mouth of the tunnel. So some of them 
hit the face of the tunnel. Some of them did actually go into the tunnel, and because it was it was actually very short, some of them actually got all the way through and out the the other side. Um, there is some footage of uh, it's probably Barnes Wallace actually standing on the railway um, about a hundred yards away from the mouth of the tunnel, which is very close when somebody's flying over your head and dropping a bomb. Um, but you, there's certainly people standing on the railway as the a high ball whizzes over them and into the mouth of the tunnel. Yeah, health, health and safety hadn't been uh, thought of back, back, back then. <laughs> um, so a question from someone who's obviously a cricket enthusiast as well as being interested in this subject. Um, Anti-ship high balls were deployed with backspin, but some of the land-based tests appear to have topspin. Is, is, is that correct? Yes, um, they, they did some tests at a bombing range in the New Forest uh, where they were rolling high balls um, again possibly for use against tunnels but possibly for use against other things as well um, but the the land-based ones or the ones that they were dropping on land they put forward spin onto um, the there wasn't the need for the rate as much range uh, with those ones so the uh, they actually put I don't know why they, why they needed to spin them at all uh, probably for balance um, but certainly the, if you see Mosquito Squadron, which is an entirely fictitious um, uh, tale with David McCallum, uh, you actually see some archive footage of, it's, 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 it's a bit of an analogue to the Dam Busters actually, but it's with mosquitoes and highballs and you see some actual uh, test footage from the New Forest with the, the forward spun highballs being dropped there. I see. Well, thanks. So we have a quick update on the uh, de Havilland Museum. Apparently, there are two there. One is the one that you brought up, and the other is Pepe Mache. So uh, that, that, that answers that question. I um, mean, you just mentioned being tested in the New Forest. Someone has asked the question, is it true that one was tested on a range off Wells in Norfolk? Is that true? There, um, 618 Squadron trained in Norfolk, um, at a place called Beckles. Um, and that was where they did some of their aircraft carrier landing practice. Um, I don't think they actually dropped any bombs there, though. They were just doing, uh, they had Beckles Airfield, they, they, they painted an aircraft carrier onto the runway and they had the, the 618 pilots come in and try and land on the, the painted runway on the, uh, the painted aircraft carrier on the, on the runway. So that's probably what led to the confusion that they were testing there, although they weren't actually actually dropping bombs in that vicinity. Um, there's a question there about spinning high bulb. I think you, you, you've already answered that. Uh, someone's asking for, for any, any more information about um, 618 Squadron, obviously not nowhere near as famous as their uh, 617 uh, uh, comrades, but uh, it, 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 I think you said it was, it was disbanded at the end of the war then. Yeah, so in... 1943, they actually went up to a place called Skitton, which is between Wick and John O'Groats. Um, and they were sighted there, essentially waiting for the phone call to say, go and bomb the Tirpitz, because they would probably have flown to Sumbra and refueled and then uh, flown up to Norway. So they did some training. Uh, and they did drop some practice highballs in one of the bays uh, fairly close to Skitton. Um, funny, funny story. I was uh, went on a, a trip up to the Orkneys 
uh, a couple of years ago when you could still do that sort of thing. And I was on a bus going from Inverness to John O'Groats and passed a house and there was a large brown spherical object in the garden of this house, um, which was about two miles away from RAF Skitton. Uh, so on the way back, um, I was sitting with the camera ready to get a picture. And thanks to the joys of Google Earth, I was able to identify the house. And I wrote them a letter and said, I'm interested in that spherical thing in your garden. It's not a highball, is it? Um, and because that would obviously have saved a lot of bother. Um, but it turned out it was just a it was a fishing float. It was it was actually only about two feet in diameter, but whizzing past on the bus, it was I made my heart stop as we went past. Yeah, your your head was obviously full of uh, high highball thoughts at the at, yeah. at the time. Okay, well I think that completes the questions. We've some questions in the Q and A and some in the chat, but I think that 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 completes them all now. So Tim is saying we're going to move to live questions now. Yeah, we just got Andy here. Okay, um, I'm a volunteer in the library and I've got quite a few logbooks. And uh, about uh, 2010, we had a, an inquiry from a guy who's a great uncle or certainly a relative of his, had been involved in photo reconnaissance at the beginning of the war and he'd been killed at Vickers at the end of the war, but didn't quite know what happened in the middle. And his name was Shorty Longbottom. Mm. And uh, he had all his logbooks. And so we got copies of all that sort of activity and obviously with uh, about the dam, uh, dam busting testing, but also of highball as well. And it's quite a reference to Bob Handerside as being one of the other pilots. Mm -hmm. And I managed to track down his daughter who had the logbooks of Bob Handerside. So I've got his copies as well, wow. which include all the uh, activities of highball and of upkeep. Um, with the highball on the railway tunnel it seems they went from angle RF angle angle sorry yes I said valley it was angle yeah, yeah, southwest um, the reference to Wells was I think because it was so close to Beckwell's airfield rather than doing any dropping down there because the only place would have been the Wayne Fleet Rangers I don't think they did anything there at all yeah I don't think so yes it was yeah. well Wells next to the sea is the yes yeah that's place. right yeah. that's right Shorty um, Longbottom was the the chap who dropped the the first live upkeep, yeah. uh, which I think was the only live one they dropped before the, the raid itself. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, just before he died, um, this friend of mine also died not long afterwards. But he or the family had one of the arming pins or the arming pin from the weapon that was dropped mm -hmm. on that test just before the dam's raid. And that, along with the real log books, went to auction. And they thought it might all only yep. come to about six or seven thousand pounds. But in the end, they went for about twenty thousand pounds for these yep. log books. And they've been spirited away to, they think, in New Zealand. But we've got in the library, we've got copies of all the log books anyway, which is uh, is quite handy. Excellent. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, saw, I saw the sorry, I saw the op, the auction for the 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 pin so i've actually yeah. got a, a photograph of it in one of the right. one of my yeah. books yeah yes yeah 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 yes but uh, thanks so much indeed very interesting thank you thank you okay so has uh, anyone else got their hand up tim i, I there's no more questions in the q a or the um, chat yeah we got daryl just put his hand up just allowing to talk yeah hi hello hi hi um i i came in a bit late sorry about that but still Fantastic, uh, fantastic talk. Um, I'm down here in Kent, 
And I don't, I don't know whether you mentioned Rakova. Did Highball, did Highball get tested first at Rakova? Yes, they did. They did the upkeep tests and Highball tests at Rakova in uh, roughly March, April, May of 1943. So there were a lot of uh, tests done down there as well, and then yeah. after I don't the think any have rolled ashore yet. I, I think they've had a few uh, uh, bouncing bombs come ashore, but no, no highballs. I think that there is a there is a highball core at Manston, and a, and there's a highball core in Heron Bay Museum, which I presume were recovered from Reculver, but clearly the the outer covering had come off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at least one of those is labelled as being an upkeep dams bomb, but if you get the dimensions of it, it's far too small. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so the lock, lock Striven was obviously a better location than Reculver. Um, it, they used it because it was more secret, it was less public than Reculver was, and also yeah. because they were going the plan was that they were going to be attacking a battleship in a fjord so locks driven was a more realistic um test of the mm. the sort of uh geography that they were going to be flying through yeah yeah okay thanks thank you okay hey, thanks daryl um we've got cliff now just allowing to talk so we should come in shortly can you hear me now is that good yep yeah, it's good. Um, I think John Nickel actually was in the tornado. He was a weapons officer. He was in the back seat, not a pilot. All right. Um, but um, Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's just historical correctness. Um, rotating the the bomb at five hundred RPM, which is quite fast for a big lump like that, was the bomb actually balanced? Yes, they did uh, static and dynamic balancing of them all. Oh, okay. Uh, before. Uh, before they, they used them for exactly that reason. Um, on the, uh, I don't know if 618 ever made any reports, but certainly on the dams raid, one of the specific questions that they had to fill out when they came back was about any vibration and it varied from yeah. severe vibration to no vibration at all. So some of them were clearly balanced better than others. Okay, that's great. Uh, lovely talk, thank you. Thank you. Okay, have we any any more, uh, Tim? No, no more hands. I've just got a, a quick one myself, if that's all right. Um, when I was doing a bit of research onto Wisdy Airfield, there was a story about um, one of the mosquitoes, and they were testing the the harness or the mechanism for holding the highball in, and uh, taking off from the Wisdy runway, and the highball dropping out bouncing along the, the airfield and hitting a, a cottage at the end. I don't know if you've heard that story as well. Uh, I have certainly heard a story of a highball hitting a house. Uh, whether, I don't know if it was, a, I, th I thought it was at Brooklyn's, maybe it, maybe it was at Wisley. Um, I believe actually, well, a, a version of the story I've heard is that yes, that did happen. And then the house was repaired and they had more or less just finished the repairs and then exactly the same thing happened again. And the same house got hit by another one. Yes, yeah, again, that's exactly I what I heard. That. And uh, the, the occupants decided to move out at that point. <laughs> Very wise. 
surprise, isn't it? Okay, so is that something else? Um, I think no, that's think we've covered. Um, so we do have, we do have a, another another question. Um, one last question: Highball was sold to the Americans after the war. Is that is that is that true? The um, the design was sold to the Americans. Um, the it, it wasn't after the war. It was, and I, I can't I can't remember the exact dates actually, but uh, they took a number of uh, dummy highballs and they fitted an A26 invader with the mechanism to actually carry it. Um, and uh, probably the, two of the, the best known archive films, uh, I'm sure you've seen the one where the highball bounces and then it deflects from the sea and starts bouncing along the beach and smashing into the groins on the beach and it comes sort of straight towards the camera. Um, the That's probably one of the most famous ones, although that was actually an unusual occurrence. The other one is the American plane, which crashes. Um, the, they had, the, the invader was based at an Air Force base in Florida, and they were doing similar test drops to what we were doing in the UK. Um, the, they were also filming them, but the filming developing unit that was supposed to be developing the films and showing them to the pilots uh, was not working. So although they were doing the test drops and they were filming them, the pilots never saw the films. And what actually happened was that the, the planes were getting lower and lower. And eventually they did a test drop and the bomb hit the water, bounced up into the tail of the plane, knocked the tail of the plane off, and it went straight into the water. Um, and the the Americans just stopped at that point. They didn't go any further. Um, so I think they'd done about a dozen test drops by then, I think. Um, so that was, that was the end of that. Um, it was very surprising, actually, because clearly uh, the RAF did several hundred test drops of highball during the war and they didn't have any serious mishaps with the aircraft at all um, and then the Americans get it and almost immediately they crash one. We, we did have a crash after the war they were doing some rough sea trials off uh, the island of Isla on the, the west coast of Scotland um, and the, uh, the highball they think hit the, the face of a wave uh, and caused a, a big splash, and the big splash took one of the horizontal stabilizers off the mosquito, and it crashed into the sea. Uh, so that was in '46. Um, they, they were the only two crashes, one American and one ours. So a, a question has been raised, um, and I was wondering this myself. We, we, we know that the highball was never used op operationally. But and uh, we know that all the, the they were effectively dummies that were, were dropped in in the trials you were talking about. Was yeah. was was a live one full of explosives? Was that ever dropped in 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 trials? I do not think so. Some of the ones in Lockstriven had the depth charge pistol fitted in them, and they actually they had hydrophones in the water underneath the target ship, so that as the bomb sank. Uh, the, the hydrophone operator could actually hear the click as the the pistol fired, but it didn't obviously have any explosives. I don't think any of the ones that we 
the, the divers found actually had the pistol in, so it must have been uh, a fairly rare occurrence, I think. Um, there, when they were at RAF Skitton, they were technically operational, and I believe the mosquitoes did actually fly with live bombs on board. Um, and if they had seen a U-boat, they would probably have had a go at it, but um, they, they didn't actually drop any, uh, either so, on trials so, so or... To, to your knowledge, yeah, there never was an actual ex explosive one that actually dropped. So um, no. we, your, 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 your book about uh, Barnes Wallace is now out of print, as I can see from the website, and I had an inquiry here if you're going to plan to uh, republish re re it. Apparently it's become quite expensive, uh, used copies. Yeah, the, well, funnily enough, the, my, my grand plan um, was um, to write that book as a retirement project. Um, and then when I heard that Peter Jackson was remaking the Dam Busters, I thought, oh, right, actually, this would be a good time to do that mm. book. Um, so that was how it got published in 2009. And then, of course, the remake has never happened. Uh, Haynes has now got out of military publishing altogether. Um, I'm told that the rights of the book have reverted to me. So I'm now back to the position of waiting on Peter Jackson's film to come out and I'll republish the book hopefully um, but yes for the uh, for the moment it's uh, available on second-hand sites only I'm afraid okay I think that that covers off all the all the questions and uh, I think I guess we've got a couple of hands still raised okay. unless okay. I didn't take Cliff's down Cliff did you have another question yes I do um, the new forest connection was that actually the airfield for where the aircraft took off for their practice runs, which I believe was Chesil Beach, possibly? Um, the Chesil Beach was only used for the very early prototype drops, um, right. which, would have, which would all have been from a Wellington, I think. Um, the, yeah. the New Forest, it, it was the, the Ashley Walk bombing range uh, in the New Forest that they, they were using. I don't know where the, the, the mosquitoes actually flew, flew from on that occasion might have been uh, Boscombe Down, but I, I'm just guessing at that because it's relatively close, but I don't know for certain. Okay, so the New Forest was a bombing bombing range, not yeah. necessarily an airfield? Yes, I actually Walk was just uh, okay. bombing, uh, for test dropping bombs on. They had a, uh, they had a number of uh, concrete targets, including a, a submarine pen uh, which they were they were using as as targets. That's another one of my myths exploded. Then, <laughs> okay, thank you. So I, th I think you said uh, Tim, there's uh, someone else had a raised hand. Yeah, Andy did, but yeah. I think he's taking his hand down again. Unless you, you no, have no, got I'm a question, Andy. No, I'm still here. Did you have Can a you question? Yeah, um, yeah. So about the um, the Ashley Walk uh, situation, it put, uh, was from Boscombe. And the pilot was squadron leader Rose. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're probably more than just squadron leader Rose, but he was the, the main pilot during the uh, mm. the drops of the highball. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, is that, I think we're, we're about done then on, on questions then, Tim. No, no, no one else. Yeah, we've got no more hands raised at the moment, Harry. 
Okay, well, um, thank you very much, uh, Ian. That was absolutely fantastic. I, um, I'm certainly going to go and get your, uh, your your book on the dam busters. That's really raised my interest in that, your Haynes manual. So I'll, I'll get one of those and maybe one of your Barnes-Wallace books if I can find one. So, uh, yes, thank, thank you very much indeed. And uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, joining the uh, webinar this evening. And we look forward to seeing you on the next uh, episode of uh, Brooklyn's TV. Thank you all very much indeed. Good night. Thanks all. Good night.